One of the reasons I encourage you every Sunday before I preach to open up a Bible is because, uh, especially when we're camped out in a book of the Bible, it's so important to be able to, at a glance, see some of the connections within Scripture. And especially uh, in today's message, I'm going to be pointing us to several areas of uh, Paul's letter. We are continuing our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and today we really turn a corner. And maybe the better imagery to uh, use is we are coming above ground for the first time. We've been taking our time with 21 messages over um, uh, a year covering the first three chapters because foundations are so important. The first 14 verses of chapter 1 are really foundation in bedrock, and then through chapter 1 and 2 and 3, Paul is unfolding the implications of this foundation, what it means to be rooted in the love of God in Christ. All of that points to what we've been calling as position in Christ or identity. This is who you are. And now, today, finally, we start looking at practice. We come above ground. Live in light of that identity. Walk in a manner consistent with who God says that you are. Ephesians 4, we'll just read the first few verses. Listen carefully. These are God's words. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, grant us a glimpse, a fresh glimpse of Your glory through this Word. Show us the risen Savior, high and lifted up. Show us who we are, in comparison with Him. He is the King, we are the servants. And give us hearts of joy as we look upon that truth and bow our knees. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking about the two halves of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6, with these words, um, position and practice or identity and practice. But we, we could also use two different words big word warning, Um, indicative versus imperative. That's where we'll start, indicatives versus imperatives. Those are just grammar terms that can um, um, accurately describe what's going on in any language, okay? The indicative mood, as it's called, is making a factual statement. It's making an assertion of truth, and the imperative mood is making a request or issuing a command, Indicative versus imperative. Here's how it works out in everyday life. Indicative. I love you as my son. You're cherished. Imperative. Now go take out the garbage. There's the truth. There's the command. Okay? Indicative mood. You're a valuable member of the soccer team. I appreciate you. Imperative. Now run your timed, soul-crushing two-mile run as fast as you can with max effort. Ready, set, go. That's the command. That's the instruction. The indicatives in Ephesians um, are all throughout the first three chapters. 
we could point out uh, some highlights in chapter 1, verse 3. These are the realities, Paul begins, behind every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chapter, 10, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, this is the purpose of God's salvation plan to bring unity to all things under the head who is Christ. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, this is who you used to be, but God, this is who God is making you to be now. The middle of chapter 2 through chapter 3, this is the mystery of God's salvation plan now fully revealed to you. This is the power of the blood of Jesus who can reconcile sinners to the Father vertically and reconcile enemies to one another horizontally. Now, imperatives, chapters 4 through 6, live lives that are consistent with who you are with who God has declared you to be. Live like children in freedom because you're no longer slaves. Grow to maturity. It's not that the first three chapters don't have any imperatives, and it's not that the last three chapters don't have any truth assertions, but we could uh, pretty fairly say that the two halves of Ephesians have these emphases, and that's where we're going for the rest of the series. We always want to jump to the second without giving enough attention to the first. Why is that? I think it's pretty universally true, and I'd say the reason's nothing new. It's that instinctive, sinful strain of independence from God, this, this sense of self-reliance that grows into self-salvation, uh, that my choices can make me a good enough person, that my decisions in life, my uh, attitude, my values, my perspective are good enough to please God but Paul won't allow that. It's not possible in the teaching inspired by the Holy Spirit of the Apostle Paul. He has taken his time laying this firm foundation and uh, to, to, to talk about the reality of sin and the necessity of God's intervening grace in our lives. And if you think the rest of Ephesians is going to sound like an instruction manual, a set of marching orders, Paul won't allow that either. His apostolic instruction, this is what you should do. This is what it looks like to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. His apostolic instruction of what you should do is never disconnected from the reality of what God has done in Christ. And so we're going to see these commands sprinkled with these reminders that we are in Christ and with Christ and given the power of the Holy Spirit, and God uh, has Establish the example, just as Jesus did, so I say, you do the same. So, looking more closely at verse 1, we'll start with this question, we'll continue with this question, is anyone worthy? Is anyone worthy? When Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received, when he uses the word calling, he's not talking about your vocation from the Latin word vocare for calling. He's not talking about your profession, what your, your job, what you do for work. He is talking about uh, this central to the reality of salvation, this calling of God to you as a sinner to take upon yourself the name of His Son Jesus by believing in Him. That's the calling He's talking about. He'll uh, reinforce that in the very next verse, chapter 4, uh, chapter four verse 4, next week's. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Paul does the same thing elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, 
where he's describing the flow of God's saving work, starting in verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His good purpose. There's this common instinct to hear the word calling and immediately think of our jobs, think of our work, think of what we do. And I'd say again, to emphasize, that reveals that false identity that is rooted in self-reliance, that delusion that what you do defines you more than who God has declared you to be. That's why Christians run to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and tend to uh, minimize attention given to chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's why we spent so much time on foundation. Notice that Paul describes this as the calling you have received. And in Romans 8, the, the language is those who have been called. It's passive language. It's not active. It's something that you've received. You haven't done anything. It's a gift of God. And, and, and that's exactly Paul's point back in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, right? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You didn't do anything. That'd be active. You were passive. You received. That's why this language is calling you have received those who have been called. It's all God. It's all at His initiative. And again, we've seen that all throughout chapters 1 and 2 in particular in Paul's foundation. So, he's challenging the Ephesian believers and us through the Word to live a life worthy of that calling. Worthy in the, in the dictionary simply means deserving, meriting recognition or reward. Well, now, wait a second. Didn't we just say, looking at the Apostle Paul, um, this is passive. This is not anything we've done. How can we be worthy? Does he have bad theology? Does he forget what he just said? Is he being inconsistent? None of the above. Take a look at the letter to the Colossians, which is uh, sort of a parallel letter, has some similarities to Ephesians. He uses the same word, talking about living a life worthy, but uh, what he says first explains how a Christian can live a life worthy of this calling. Listen, uh, Colossians 1, 9 and 10, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, comma, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. You see that language? Paul says, we've not… not not stop praying for you. We're asking God to fill you. You're empty. You don't have what it takes. You're out of gas. Asking God to fill you. You're passive. You're receiving this gift through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to empower you, to point you to Jesus, to um, be the active agent in your life so that you may live a life worthy of this calling. Same word. That's exactly what Paul has already prayed here in the letter to the Ephesians. He's prayed it twice. And so he's not at all asking these Christians to do something under their own power. He is assuming 
because he's already prayed that God would give them power to know his love, he is assuming that they are now enabled by the Spirit to live lives that are worthy. It's not about us. It's all by grace, and God gets the glory. Is anyone worthy? No, not one. On our own, it's impossible. Here's a scene from the Apostle John's vision at the end of history, Revelation chapter 5. This is what he says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside no one until the lamb looking as if it had been slain, because Jesus did die, he was slain, took the scroll and opened it because he was worthy through his life of perfect obedience and through his powerful triumphant death on the cross and through his walking out of the tomb in resurrection. That is the only way to make sense of Paul telling us to do the otherwise impossible, to live a life worthy of this calling. We can't. Jesus did it for us if you believe in Him. That leads us to the last focus on humility. Paul says, live a life worthy of this calling, literally, with all humility and gentleness. This Greek word, the New Testament was written in Greek. This Greek word for humility um, was extremely rare in the literature of the first century. It wasn't used much because it was, uh, it, it was something to be looked down upon, a character trait to be avoided because it was demeaning. It was beneath you. It would describe uh, the reality of your life as not having arrived. So it wasn't something you uh, um, aspired to. So people didn't write about it. But what does the Apostle Paul do? First century, writing in Greek. The first thing he says in terms of how to live a life worthy of this calling is with all humility. He not only puts it first in his instruction, he adds this word all That's where we get the sense of be completely humble. Value it. Pursue it. Own it. Let it saturate you, permeate you. This is why the gospel is so countercultural. It was so in the first century in its context, and it is today in the 21st century. And remember, Paul, verse 1, is a prisoner in Rome. He's in jail, and he's writing this letter displaying in his own life that a life worthy of this calling he has received is a life of sacrificial obedience. And doesn't that make sense? Shouldn't that not surprise us because of Ephesians 2, first couple of verses, you were dead in your sin, Paul is saying. You were an enemy of God deserving of judgment. But God, gospel words, He raised you up. He made you alive first, and then He raised you up, and then He seated you with Jesus. That's why Paul writes to the Romans, do not um, think of yourself more highly than you ought, 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Who were you before God made you somebody? Who are you except for what God has made you in Christ today in filling you up with spirit power? At the intersection between God and humanity, we find humility. Humility is behind the coming, the advent of the God-man Jesus at that first Christmas, coming in lowly contexts. And humility is the heart attitude that makes possible saving faith in this Jesus. The arrogant, prideful, thinking much of him or herself person has no need for the invasion of God and man into time and space to rescue or find just on our own. The humble person, humbled by the reality of sin, humbled by failure, humbled by need, perhaps looks to the reality of who Jesus is and what He's done. Listen to Tim Keller write about humility. Humility is so shy. If you begin talking about it, it leaves. (laughs) Then he adds this, Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less, as C.S. Lewis so memorably said. It is to be no longer always noticing yourself and how you are doing and how you are being treated. It is blessed self-forgetfulness. Blessed self-forgetfulness. The gospel frees us from the compulsion to be looking at ourselves all the time. And I'm not only talking about physical appearance in the mirror, I'm also talking about looking at ourselves in terms of worrying about status and image. Where am I on the the corporate ladder? Where am I on the social ladder? How am I doing relative to my neighbor? I'm talking about self-pity that comes out of this sense that I deserve better. Gospel humility directs us instead to be preoccupied with Jesus, not with what I have or have not accomplished, not with who I am or am not based on my own accomplishments. If we're preoccupied with Jesus, everything that we need to be, every reason for security and confidence and identity comes from Him as He fills us. Randy Pausch Uh, in his book, Last Lecture, describing his dying, shared this family memory. When I was studying for my PhD, I took something called the theory qualifier, which I can now definitively say was the second worst thing in my life after chemotherapy. When I complained to my mother about how hard and awful the test was, she leaned over, patted me on the arm, and said, we know just how you feel, honey. And remember, when your father was your age, he was fighting the Germans. (laughs) Boom, mom with the mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Pity party is over. Everybody go home. Celebration's over. Um, A little dose of humility is good for the soul. To think less of yourself and to think of yourself less. Both are embedded, right? Um, It's the first thing Paul points to, humility. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought and thinking of yourself less not being so self-centered in a sense. It's the first thing he talks about in terms of living out this identity, living worthy of the calling you've received. This is how the church grows to maturity, which is the theme of chapter four. We'll get there over the next few weeks.
And it starts with humility. The relational implications of humility are huge. They have every, it has everything to do with all of our connections with people within our families, within our friendship circles, within a church like our, our own here. Because if you think much of yourself, if you uh, put a lot of value in your self-performance and self-worth, then you will take pride in your own hard work, whether you succeed or not. You'll take pride in your moral purity, your smarts, whether it's intelligence or wisdom or street smarts. You'll take pride in your proper theology, whatever the category may be. And if you've done fairly well to please God in these moral efforts, in these um, areas of life, you naturally look down on other people who don't work so hard as you, who aren't as smart, who slip in their moral purity, who have sketchy theology, which means you can't be gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, the rest of verse 2. You, you can't be gentle and bearing with one another in love because you can't stand these people. You despise people who are lazy, who give in to porn, who don't know their Bible well enough, who don't get politics like you get because it's so simple and straightforward. How could they not? Who don't discipline their kids the right way your way. Humility is the soil in which this other-honoring, church-renewing character can grow. This is not a checklist for shopping. As practical and specific as Paul will get, this is not like a a little experience from uh, probably 20 years ago. Uh, I was in the best shape of my life in grad school because I uh, went to the Y and hit the free weights with this ex-high school fullback. uh, fullback. He knew how to work out, and he just told me what to do every day. So Mondays, we did shoulders, abs, working muscle groups to exhaustion, isolating, shoulders, abs. Wednesday, we'd hit triceps back. Friday, biceps, leg. Please don't check me out. I said a long time ago, okay? (laughs) This is 20 years. Nowhere, Nowhere close to reality today. That is not the way the Christian life works in terms of character formation. You can't just put a list on your fridge and and, and list out these wonderful character traits. You know, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, today I'm going to be gentle. Tomorrow I'm going to be patient. Tuesday I don't have time for any of that, so I'll just have to wait. Wednesday I'll get back to it. That's not how it works. When Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, the word fruit is a singular word. It's not fruits of the Spirit. There aren't nine of them. You know, try, try to get seven out of nine, that's a pretty good score. No, there's the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because all nine elements are this outgrowth of the Spirit at work renewing your inner person. The fruit gets displayed. And if there are some absent, completely absent, Of the nine, maybe it's a sign that the Spirit is not really filling you. The ability to laugh at yourself, to screw up, to bumble through life, to accept criticism as a result, or or some um, teasing laughter, that's the stuff of normal, everyday life that's um, a consequence of gospel humility. That... 
breaks down the image of the church as a bunch of holy rollers who put on a good face, who, who uh, put up a facade. Everything is okay with our lives. Nothing's flawed and messy. How do we break that down? If I think of myself with sober judgment, not thinking of myself more highly than I ought, I realize there's, there's parts of me that are more flawed than I'll notice. And I need to go looking, perhaps even asking. And if I can admit I'm wrong, if I can even admit the way I think sometimes is wrong, is missing perspective, then I can begin to understand people who are very different from me. That's a step towards unity. When I screw up, the gospel gives me power and freedom, freedom to admit and confess to God my wrong, and power and um, access through faith in Jesus to confidently believe that I have forgiveness through the substitute death of Jesus on the cross. When that kind of gospel renewal spreads throughout the church, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace grows, and it serves as a powerful witness to the watching world about how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Grace Redeemer Church, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Oh, but that's not possible. Is anyone worthy? There is one. His name is Jesus. And so look at, gaze more and more intently at the worthy life of obedience that Jesus displayed perfectly and the worthy death of Jesus in your place. And then how will you know that the, the, your, your faith is rooted and established in this love of Christ, Ephesians 3.17? The fruit and the flower of humility will have a beauty that is unmistakable, and glory will come back to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the King, and yet, as the glorious and majestic one, there has never been and there will never be one like you who displayed humility to that extent. You don't, you don't call us to die for our sin. You've done that for us. But you do call us to walk in your footsteps. You do show us, Lord Jesus, that humility, admitting our emptiness, is the key step towards being filled with the power of your Spirit, filled with the abundance of your blessing for us. And so lead us there. Kill our pride and show us that our identity through what you've done is all that we need. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.